<laughs> I, uh, I knew it was you this week, so I gave you that long one. Actually, I didn't. She actually probably picked it herself. Um, we are in a study of the Gospel of John. As you just heard, we, we are in John 6, verses 1 through 29. And I have entitled this sermon, Jesus is Gloriously Enough. But as I get into the intro, you may begin to question, do I really believe that? You know, life can have its way with us. It can leave us wanting sometimes the longer that we live. Often, our dreams are shattered, our relationships are broken, our careers derail or they don't even go in the direction that we dreamed that they would, our children struggle, our marriages may struggle and even end in divorce. We have illness, we have declining health, we have cancer, arthritis, and finally even death. So when I say Jesus is gloriously enough, and then I come back with that, you go, well, is he really? John Cougar Mellencamp, um, probably showing my age a little, little bit, he had an uh, iconic song, Jack and Diane. Many of you, maybe probably all of us have heard that song. In that song, there are these lyrics. Jack, he says, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Oh yeah, he says, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Hold on to 16 as long as you can because changes come around real soon and make us women and men. Hang on to your youth is the message. Growing up and certainly growing old will be hard and dissatisfying is John Cougar Mellencamp's message through his song. Can we find deep joy can we find happiness after the youthful years have passed and perhaps our first loves are just a distant memory and our best health has now left us in our aging bodies and our forgetful minds or what we're dealing with in the present? I'm saying Jesus is gloriously enough. However, it does seem like in the intro, I'm contradicting myself, doesn't it? Life has a way of failing or letting us down. So you know what the response for many pastors is? Many preachers today will stand today in front of their congregation, and they'll tell them that if you have enough faith, and uh, God will meet you in all your worldly desires, and He'll comfort you, and He'll give you wealth, and he'll give you prosperity, and that actually is an easy, and it's a popular message to preach. So easy to preach, some of those men will actually hop on their personal ministry-funded jets, and they'll fly over to Africa and to Asia and places like that, and they'll preach this prosperity gospel to those people. And... Then they'll take what little money those people have 
They'll put it in their bags and put it back on their planes, and they'll get in their plane, and they'll fly home believing they've done something good. There's one problem with that preaching and that gospel. It's not the gospel at all. And actually, it's built on greed, and it's just straight evil from Satan himself. That is not the answer. That is not the answer, plain and simple. How do we know that? Well, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So these preachers are setting people up to be plunged into ruin and into destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. These preachers are teaching people to pierce themselves with many pains, to go pursue money. It's just evil. It's wrong. Jesus did not come to give you everything you desire but to change your desires. Jesus didn't come to give you all your desires. He came to change your desires. In our story today, Jesus miraculously is feeding 5,000 people. Some scholars believe there were 5,000 men, and then when you add the women and children, it may have been as many as 20,000. The main idea, though, and I'd like for you to look, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look with me at John 6, 26, because I believe the verse and what Jesus is teaching hinges on that, John 6, 26. In John 6, 26, this is what it says. Jesus answered them, and you know, as a Jew, when he says truly, truly, that means listen up. This is really important. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because you got your belly full. You're seeking me because you got what you wanted in this temporary way. So, to say, don't simply seek to have your stomach full, but seek the bread of life itself, means Jesus is saying, Don't seek the gift, but seek the giver. Don't seek the gift, but seek the giver. Here's a question for us. What if a full stomach and having all our needs and wants met is actually the worst thing for us? Don't we see this maybe with children of wealthy parents? It often ruins them. It often ruins them. God's let, and here's the hard truth, God's let some pieces of your lives break and shatter 
he might reveal himself to you. And that's not easy. But I believe that it is true. Is Jesus really enough? If so, why doesn't it feel like he's enough sometimes? If I'm honest, even in my preparation this week, I went home at some point and I got Peggy over to the side, my wife, and I said, remind me how Jesus is enough sometimes. And we had a conversation about it. You know, John Cougar Mellencamp's song, Jack and Diane, it struck a raw nerve with his audience. It was like a dental probe finding an exposed nerve root. I just had a root canal. That's probably where this is coming from. And when they hit that nerve, man, I about came out of the chair. She said, raise your hand if you feel anything. I went, and I couldn't talk because I had all this stuff in my mouth, you know. That root nerve that John Cougar Mellencamp hit with that dental probe to American society was the root of our desire for satisfaction, joy, and happiness. He hit a nerve. And what we believe as we get older is all that's past. You know, if you go back to that lyric, he says, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Like the thrills of living happened when you were 16. So he says, hold on to 16 as long as you can. Changes are going to come around real soon and make you a woman and a man. That's the nerve he hit. That's probably why the song did so well. God has placed a deep desire for joy and happiness in all of us. It's a God-given thing, and it's not wrong. The reason Mellencamp strikes the nerve is because we're all trying, just like the song, to feel and meet that desire in a sinful way. In that very song, the idea is that these two 16-year-olds an unmarried couple are going to fulfill their sexual passions. Fleeting and empty pleasure is really what it is. And if we give ourselves to them, in the end, we find ourselves wanting. And some of us know that experientially. So, how we go about finding our joy is what God is challenging in this text in John 6. He's placed in us a desire for happiness, a desire for satisfaction, but how you go about fulfilling that is what John 6 is really all about. Let's look at the text. Look at it again with me. 6, uh, six one, or starting in 6.2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread. And I think in the NIV what Terry said, it's like eight months of labor wouldn't provide enough bread for all these people. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but where are they for so many? 
So, a couple of questions for us. Why was the crowd following Jesus at this point? He had been doing signs. It's like if, if uh, one of you were doing miraculous signs, I might find myself on Monday following you around like, hey, maybe I can get something out of this. You know, Maybe there's something in this for me. And then another question, why does Jesus ask Philip, where can we buy bread? If you look, it's right there in verse 6. It was to test him. So then the question for me is, what's the test? I mean, what's Jesus' test here? What's he up to? What kind of test is this? But before we get to that, note Andrew's response. Andrew says, you know, it's kind of like dumb and dumber standing there. Uh, there's a kid over here with five barley loaves and two fish. And it's like, do you realize that that isn't going to cover it? Does Andrew really think in that moment that Jesus can miraculously make food, more food? It's interesting because haven't they already seen him do stuff like this? Yeah, they have. So what is the test here from Jesus? <clears throat> I think, having been studying through John, it is once again, Jesus is trying to reveal his identity, that indeed, I am God. I can do this. That, I think, is the test. He's trying to say, Will you, do you think, you know, where are we going to buy bread? And the whole thing, the whole time he's thinking, we're not going to buy bread. I'm going to make bread. I'm going to make fish appear out of thin air. Do you believe I can do that? Because later when we get down, he's going to say the work of God is to believe. When we get down into verse 29, I believe it is. 26, maybe. And so, how could the people that are closest to Jesus, they've been with him, they've seen him doing all these things, and yet... Here they are, Jesus says, how are we going to feed these people? And they're like, got no clue. I have no idea how we're going to do it. I know you've done all these miracles, but I don't know how we're going to do this. <clears throat> Can you imagine, though, and I want you to just kind of go into this journey with me, the conversation that happened between Andrew and Philip, who are the two key players in the verse. After they fed the crowds, and they're picking up the fragments because at the end, Jesus says, I want you to go pick up all the fragments. Don't leave any of them. So here it is. Here's the conversation. And I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, obviously, with the text. Philip sets his basket on the ground, and he sits down. And he's kind of got the basket there in between his legs. And he says to Andrew, as Andrew joins him for a short break, after all, they've been picking up bread fragments for about 5,000 people. Could you imagine how much your back would be hurting after a while? So Andrew comes over, sits down beside Philip, and uh, Philip says with a smile, I guess I overestimated the cost for lunch. Andrew smiles widely and says, and I guess I grossly underestimated the boy's magic bread and fish. He did it again, didn't he? Yeah, he did, brother. He did. Why are we so slow to see this coming? We've watched him with the man at the pool. We've seen him heal the soldier's 
sun from miles away. He's turned water into wine in front of us. He leads hundreds to faith in Samaria through a woman who has a bad reputation. And it just seems to go right over our heads. How can we be so thick-headed when it comes to this stuff? And Andrew, by this time, he laughs out loud. He says, my wife always said I was slow to see the obvious. I guess she's right. Philip laughs a laugh of acknowledgement. Well, let's get this stuff up and head across the sea. And Philip says, hang on, hang on, Andrew. One last question. Do you think that this fish here in my hand, he picks it up out of the basket, do you think it really ever swam in the sea? And then he grabs some barley and he says, and this barley, I mean, did it ever really grow in a field? Or did he just create this stuff out of thin air? Andrew says, only he knows the answer to that, Philip. Only he would know that. And then Philip says to Andrew, it's more serious. Do you realize we are walking around this earth with the God of the universe? Why do we get this glorious privilege? Why did he choose us out of all the people in the world? Again, brother, only he knows. But I know this, I will be forever thankful. Me too. Me too. And in John 6, 15, look at that with me in your Bibles. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here it is, the King of kings, God incarnate on planet earth. They're going to come and try to make him their king. You know what's going on? There's something to this guy. We could get something out of this guy. Let's make him our king now. We can get our immediate needs met. And Jesus knows all of what they're up to. And so he pulls away and keeps it from happening. The king of kings will not be your king your way. The king of kings is the king, and he will only be the king his way, not your way. You cannot dictate the terms. When we read the scripture and there's something we don't get, or it's really hard to understand, we don't say, well, I don't believe that because that doesn't feel good. You know what we do? We say, I am under the authority of God's word. And if it says it, I believe it, and I'm going to put myself under his authority. We do not worship the God that we decide. We worship the God that's revealed in the scriptures. So, we have a similar response to they do. We want, we want our wealth. We want our comfort. We want our ease. We want our desires met. So we try to put God in there as a piece of the pie of our life. And God says, I won't have it. 
I will be Lord of all or I won't be Lord at all. You, you can run your own thing. I am God. I will run it the way it is to be run. I did not come here to give you your desires. I came to change your desires because your desires are too small. You do not see what I see. There are bigger things, and your desires are not big enough. So, Jesus walks on water in this next part. What is, what is all that about? We've heard that story our whole lives. You know what I think Jesus walking on water is all about? I think it's about their unbelief. And I also think about, I think it's about what just happened with the bread. Why, why is he walking on water now? Well, if you read the text, what happens is they feed all these people and then they, they want to make Jesus king and he pulls away. Meanwhile, the disciples go get in a boat and it says they get three miles out in the water and Jesus, it's not like he's not God. He didn't know that they're three miles out in the water. He knew that. He let that happen. And then he let the storm come and the water rage, and those men get fearful. And in that moment, you, know, you got to know, I believe, because of our fallen nature, they're in the boat, and we know from another account over in Matthew, they say, do you not care that we're perishing? You see, that's an accusation against his motive. That's an accusation against God's heart. Don't you care that we're perishing? That's different than we're perishing. It's don't you even care that we're perishing. Well, in our text, it doesn't say that, but it does say they became fearful. And I bet you Andrew and Philip looked at each other and were like, well, what's the bread thing, dude? He just did a miracle, and now we're going to drown out here in the sea. I don't get this guy. I don't get it. Why would we die out here now when he just did this miracle? So that's why I think Jesus did the miracle. You know what? Uh, Non-believing liberal scholars, when I say liberal, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Democrat, Republican I'm talking about people that don't believe the Bible is God's word. That's what I'm saying when I'm saying liberal scholars, liberal theologians. You know what they say about the bread incident? This is what they say. Or Andrew or Philip, whoever saw the kid, they got the kid to give his loaves and his fish. And when everybody else that was there saw that the kid was being generous, they all said, well, I've got some lunch I brought in my you know, Star Wars lunchbox, and we can get that out, and I'll share what I have, and they share what they have, and they share what they have. Next thing you know, we feed 5,000 people. They say there was no miracle at all. It's just the benevolence of one child sparked the benevolence of the whole masses, and that's how they fed them. Well, maybe. But how do you explain Jesus walked on water? How do you explain it? I mean, was it that it's three miles on water? Was it that every step a turtle came up and he stepped on the back of them 
and he just kept walking on those turtles till he got out there. It's just good turtle love is what it was, wasn't it? No, the issue is when you walk on water, you're God. That's the issue. And Jesus was saying, it's not the benevolence of 5,000 people sharing their lunch. It's that I'm God. I can walk on water. And the interesting thing is, when he gets into the boat, it all calms. You see, it isn't about us fixing all the circumstances going on around us in our lives. It's being near Jesus. There's a big difference. Because in this life, in this broken world, my life, my situation, my circumstances, your life, your situation, your circumstances, just live long enough. It ain't going to all work out. Not the way you're thinking. What we need is Jesus to be with us in the boat. And it's so interesting because when he gets in the boat after walking on the water, it says that they immediately came to shore. If you just look at that text, it's interesting. It's like they're out there, they're in the middle of everything, and then Jesus gets in the boat and they immediately come to shore. And I think it's saying something about his provision and his taking care of them. But it also says something because all of the people that don't believe who he is, they come and say, how did you get here? There was only one boat, and how did you get here? And you know what? As a man, if I had walked on water, or if you had walked on water, and they asked me, how did you get over here? There was only one boat. You know what I'd have said? <laughs> I walk on water, dude. Yes, sir. You don't. I do. I'm the man. You know what Jesus said? He changed the conversation. He never told them he walked on water. You know what TV evangelists do? If they do anything that seems miraculous, they want everybody watching. They want all the cameras rolling. Jesus is so opposite, man. That's what makes Jesus God. He he's not trying to impress. It wasn't about him. He doesn't say anything to them about walking on water. The only people that know he walked on water were the disciples. And he was trying to say to the disciples what he's trying to say all along in the, in the Gospel of John. I'm really God. I'm really God. That was no fluke. I can walk on water. I can change the molecules of the earth at any given moment. I'm the God of the universe. Believe it. The only way he could walk on water is if he was God. So he does that. And then in verse John, it says, uh, John 6, 26, I said, I thought this was the verse that the whole thing hinges on. Let's talk about it for a minute. In John 6, 26, it says this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. They've just asked him how he got over there. This was his response. Not, I walked on water, but I'm taking my dental probe out again, and I'm going to sting you, and I'm going to let you feel something so that maybe you can see something. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
You're seeking him, not because you saw signs, but because you got your belly full. That's what he's saying. You got your belly full. And then he says, and this, was, this is tricky. He says, work for food that endures to eternal life. Why is that tricky? Because everything I've ever taught you and believed myself about the gospel is that I don't work for it. The gospel is a free gift. And so he says, this, work for food that leads to eternal life. There's a rub there. Now all of a sudden we're working for our salvation, aren't we? Look at, look at John 6.29 and you're going to see the answer. In John 6.29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work is to believe. This is what the gospel of John is trying to teach us from start to end. Believing in Jesus. John is, I mean, John is showing us in miracles. He's showing us in signs. And Jesus is saying, I am God. Believe it. That is the work that leads to salvation, believing in the identity and the person of Jesus Christ. He is God. So this explains how when we get old, and I don't miss this. I'm going back from, from, to the intro, really, and I don't want you to miss this. I think you're going to appreciate this. This explains how when we get old and we, let's say, cannot work, we cannot run, we cannot play. We cannot enjoy youthful exuberance. And we, and we can't maybe experience the joy and the happiness and the sweetness and the fullness. You see, John Cougar Mellencamp, he couldn't have known the joy that you can only know in God. It's no wonder the song became an American icon Few, few know of this kind of running. What I'm saying is, even when we're 95, not just when we're 16, if we do the work of God and we believe in Him and we are in His presence, there is a new kind of running. There's a new kind of playing. There's a new kind of joy. There's a new kind of glory, a new kind of happiness. And so here... Jesus is gloriously enough for you to run again, Alma. Jesus is gloriously enough for you to play, Bob. Jesus is gloriously enough for Henry and Shirley and Pastor Weaver and Hilda and Bud and Sandra and Vivian and Maxine and JB and Clarence and Coletta, all of you in Christ can run. You can still run. That is the gospel and the glory of God. Now, finally, I want to switch gears a little bit. I believe everything that I just said is true. But what is keeping us? What is it that is keeping us from experiencing that Jesus is gloriously enough. And I'm not just saying the people that I just read. I'm saying 
all of us? What is keeping all of us from experiencing? The problem for all of us is our hearts are black holes of discontentment, devouring relationships and possessions, all while screaming, I need more, I need more. We're all eating but famished, always drinking but never satisfied. Dissatisfaction in life is near the root of all kinds of sin. Why is it that people cheat on their spouse? Why is it that people abuse drugs and alcohol? Why do we mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of television and ridiculous shows sometimes? We scroll endlessly through Facebook, Twitter. We steal. We commit suicide. All of these things and more happen because we haven't found happiness. At the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. We've been duped into thinking that a better job, more money, cooler friends, another spouse, a new life is really what we need. And if we can't obtain any of these things or when they leave us dissatisfied, we resort to drug abuse, sexual immorality, senseless entertainment. You know what? The promises of satisfaction in the Bible are all over the place. But I'm going to give you three or four. This one, I was up in my office praying before I came down. Psalm 1611. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-six: The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And then in our own text, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall hunger no more. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's a promise from the God of the universe. No more hunger, no more thirst. And when he's talking about that, he's not talking about a physical. He's talking about a, a spiritual thirst, where we really live, where our hearts and our souls break over the circumstances in our life. He's saying, even though the storm rages, Ask me into the boat with you. Ask me into the boat with you. I will take you safely to shore. I am gloriously enough. God and God alone is man's highest good. God is the source and sustainer of all good. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And here's the thing. If I tell you, if you'll follow Christ, you'll be comfortable, you'll be wealthy, you'll have that really nice home you want, you might get that sports car. Well, everybody follow that Christ. 
That, that doesn't make God look good. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. What makes God look good is when our circumstances are crumbling and maybe, God forbid, through great pain and grief, we lose someone, our wives, our children, someone very, very dear to us. And by faith, we do the work of God. And the work of God is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he is gloriously enough. And you know what happens when you do that? You make much of him. And when you're satisfied in him, he is gloriously 